and welcome to Batonage, a new podcast of stirring and we hope stimulating discussions about wine. I'm Fiona Beckett. And I'm Liam Stevenson. And we both like talking about wine. So this week we're talking about English sparkling wine, which is having a bit of a moment at the moment, um, winning lots of awards. And I think a lot of people are reaching for a bottle instead of champagne these days. Uh, Before we introduce our guest, Liam, what have you been up to? Something to do with English sparkling wine, I think. Very nicely. I've not gone very far on my travels this year yet. Well, this week I've been in England. I've been um, in the South Downs, so um, dancing a producer called Black Dog Hill yesterday. Looking, walking around their vineyard and tasting their wine, which was great. And then the week before, I was with our guest in Lime Bay Winery, um, seeing a bit of dosage for a sparkling wine. Introduce together. our guest. So our guest today is um, Liam Ejikowski, head winemaker at uh, Lime Bay Winery, um, and somebody that I've got to know a little bit over the last couple of years. So it's really, really lovely to be here with you today thank you yeah. well yeah thanks thanks for having me and uh yeah it might be a bit confusing whenever you say liam what do you say <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the two of us uh, yeah sort of jump in um so yeah no thanks thanks very much for having me that's great very pleased i was just gonna i was gonna tell a little story actually at the weekend i had my children around the lunch table and i said to my youngest son tom um where do you think wine comes from and he said um new zealand france England, and he came up with a list. But what made me sort of sit up was that his third country was England. And my kind of takeaway from that conversation was that I never thought I grew up in a wine-producing country. I mean, if someone said, what's the wine-producing country? To me, it would be Italy, Spain, France. You know, I never thought I grew up in an English wine-producing country, yet my children do. So something's happened, hasn't it? I think so. I think it's happened for many people. And... People who, for a special occasion, never have dreamt of opening a bottle of English sparkling wine now do. I mean, it's, it's interesting that uh, the history of English wine in, in general, because it feels like it's just exploded, but it's been a long time coming. You know, you, you go back, you know, right the way back to the, the, the Romans, and there was uh, vineyards at that stage, and the Doomsday Book, there were vineyards. Uh, you get the um, sort of Henry VIII, where you get the, the medieval sort of cooling. Uh, I think it was called the Middle Ice Age, um, and you also got the, the you know the, the monasteries disappearing at that point as well. Vines absolutely vanished from England. It wasn't really until the 1800s that it started to warm up again. And once it starts to warm up again and say, the early 1900s to a stage where actually, you know, viticulture is borderline sort of viable, um, you then have two world wars. Like, you know, there's, you know, two major events, um, the First World War and the Second World War. And at these points, people are, uh, have got much more um, uh, urgent matters to be looking after rather than making wine. So it wasn't really until, you know, the sort of 70s that English wines started to, to really kind of gather pace again where people were planting. But what they were doing is they were planting German varieties for still wine. Uh, and there was a lot going in. Um, and the wines were, they were OK. The, the, there's, you look at back at the 70s, there wasn't stainless steel. Everything was done in fiberglass tanks. There was no refrigeration. There was no bottling without um, being able to evacuate the oxygen either. So you, you end up making a very, you know, standard still wine. And it wasn't really until, you know, kind of the, the late 80s that, that people were like, well, hold on, is um, what about sparkling wine? You know, Pinot Noir, Meunier, Chardonnay. Let's have a look at, at what we can do with this at, to, to a high standard. Um, and then in the late 80s, there's 
these vines start to get planted, but you know, you don't just plant a vine and have grapes the next year. It takes you know three years. You have to find the vineyard, you have to prepare it, you plant it. So you've got several years to, to actually establish a vineyard. And then of course with sparkling wine, you've got the you know, you make the base wine and you put it into bottle and then you have to age it. So there's another sort of yeah. four or five years lost in, in, you know, in, in the abyss. So if, if you're planting something in, say, 1990, you're not going to be releasing that bottle until you know, maybe 98, you know, there's an, and then it's going to be small quantities because you've not been that brave. You're not going to sort of go, right, I'm going out, I'm going to plant you know, 100 acres of, of vineyards because you, you kind of, you know... Dip your, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're going to dip your toe in the water. Um, so, you know, what, what you then sort of find is, um, you know, towards the light, late 90s, there's... Uh, you know these wines start coming out that are of, of, of a high quality, but not not huge quantities, and they start doing well in awards. People start writing about them, but it still takes you know it takes time for that knock on effect, and 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 this is what I think you're finding now is is, is this initial kind of knock on effect from the the wines of the late nineties um, that are really kind of you know sort of coming out. So, is it possible to say that wine? production in England is not the product of or the growth of it is not the result of global warming there's definitely there is definitely warming um, you know the, the way the world works is a little you know cold and warm and yeah. you know to to what extent I, I one thing I, I know is I'm I've, I'm not a sort of climatic scientist and, and um, you know a meteorologist I think there's a there's a lot to be said for for people that really do delve into that for um, lots of different reasons. As a as a winemaker, I'm not going to go and start planting um, sort of Merlot or, or Cabernet Sauvignon in England, thinking this is what you know this will be yeah, good yeah, in sort of thirty years, 30 time. years yeah. time. I want to make sure whatever's getting planted now is going to produce good wines in you know sort of five, ten, sort of fifteen yeah. years. Um, and I, I mean personally, I'm a bit more reactive. I think, um, and I think most people should be. I think if if, if you're going to be planting a, a vineyard up in Scotland, thinking it's going to you know we've, it's caught up with with global warming, then you, you, you're potentially uh, going to find difficulties. Uh, but on, on a practical level, how much has it changed since? I mean, how, how long ago did you start making wine in the UK? So, well, the UK it, it's quite yeah, it's quite interesting because I I was in the UK not thinking of staying in the UK, mm. and it was always one of those ones where it was like this is great I've got the opportunity to make wine in the UK um, I, I wouldn't have had that opportunity if I was you know uh, other places I'd have been an assistant winemaker or you know work my way up to an associate winemaker and then eventually you, you become a winemaker but because it was in England um, and it, it's a bit more cavalier um, I was quite happily sort of just throwing the responsibility right yeah go on you you know you've worked a few overseas harvests you can you can make wine can't you you've got a degree in it it's like yeah, yeah of course I can um, and, 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 and really kind of winging it. So, I mean, I've been in, in England, this must be... So 2011 was the first first year, um, and it wasn't really until about 2014 where I was like, no, this is, you know, this is way too exciting to leave. And That's interesting. How kind of is the um, Northern Irish winemaking club? 
The, so, well, actually, that's, yeah, it's interesting you say that. I've got a wine here by um, uh, Dermot, who's from Southern Ireland. Um, but whenever I was in Australia working at Tyrrell's, I shared a house with a guy called Austin Black. Um, and he's a, he's a winemaker. He was in um, New Zealand. He's now the wine... Oh, no, he's back in New Zealand. He was the winemaker at McForbes Winery in the, yep. the, the, the Yarra, uh, uh, Yarra Valley. And it, it, fantastic wines there. He's now moved back to central Otago. I can't remember the... Uh, it begins with T, the winery he's just moved okay. to, but I'm sure he's going to do some... And he's not Northern Irish. He, he's Northern Irish. He's from Ballymena. Huh? So, a hotbed. Yeah, a hotbed. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's, there's, def- there's definitely two. So in that um, period, you know, so actually it's probably slightly more recent than I thought, so, I mean, presumably the conditions haven't changed that much, or have, have the weather conditions got more if not hotter, then more unpredictable. I mean, I'm trying to remember which year was almost a total washout for the industry. Yeah, 2012 2012 was was a difficult year. So sort of looking back on recent years, uh, I'm not sure what um, 08 was like, but but 2009 was was meant to be quite a good year. 2010 was a very good year. 2011 was small but good um, good quality. 2012 was a, a washout for, for nearly everyone. Um, although, rather surprisingly, there was... And we'll, we'll talk about it later. I saw fruit from uh, sort of... Uh, I'm sure I'm allowed to mention Newhall. Uh, saw some of their fruit who were up in the Crouch Valley region, 2012. And was it was impeccable. Uh, so it's kind of... It's the Denji Peninsula. Um, so in Essex. Yeah, that, that their fruit fruit was absolutely impeccable um not huge quantities but um the the, the grapes went on to to make some very good good wines as well um 13 was a late small year 14 was 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 huge good quality 15 i mean it's you know there's 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 been sort of ups and downs there aren't just many washouts there's no i mean uh or or like everyone presumably if grapes are grown from as far as Cornwall on the one hand yes. to Essex on the other. Yes. I mean that's you know that's quite a difference in climate between Absolutely. those two areas and soil presumably. So here's yeah. the story I remember coming into it sparkling one. I was mm. told you know four years ago maybe maybe not that re- you know maybe it's quite recent in my head um, that English sparkling wine is so great for two reasons. First of all, we have a climate which is not very far away from Champagne, like it's a degree difference, and there's a chalk thread which is similar to the chalk in Champagne, and it runs through Sussex and Kent. And as long as you've got those two things together, you're going to make good sparkling wine. It seems to be that there's more to it than that. So, yeah, there's a, lot, there's a lot more to it than that. And, and it's one of those things that... Uh, the, the, the chalk and the, the thought that we've got the same climate as Champagne, uh, it's great for marketing, and it's great to be able to use that to relate people to, to the wines. It's like, yeah, of course we can make sparkling wines just like Champagne. Yeah. Um, but reality is, is we're, you know, we're, we've got similar weather to Brittany, um, and, and, and they don't make a huge amount of wine in, in, in Brittany. Um, it depends whereabouts you are in the UK. And uh, uh, sort of Alistair Nesbitt, he put it best. He said, you know, we're, we're, we're an island of weather, and you've got to really find the best, best places in the UK to be able to grow Pinot Noir, Meunier, Chardonnay to yeah. a high level, um, yeah. of, uh, you know, uh, similar to sort of Champagne. The climate in Champagne compared to England is, uh, yeah, sort of growing degree days and, and, and like you sort of said, there's not a huge difference in temperature, but there is actually quite a bit in rainfall. Um, and that rain tends to come in 
the UK towards harvest time. So you want to be planted in a dry area of the UK as well. So, you know, you're looking for areas that, um, I mean, I, you know, I'm in Devon at the moment and you, you start and, and, and you know yourself, the, the second you go to, say, North Devon, it's, yeah. you know, it, it doesn't stop raining. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, where, where we are and, say, uh, towards Limston and, and uh, you know, the, the sort of the estuaries around there and Torquay, you, you have got some very, you know, sort of decent dry, dry yeah. weather. I think the chalk issue is the bit that uh, sort of concerns me the most, though, because, um, uh, you know, my, my feelings on, on soil are, you know, you transpose one free-draining soil for another free-draining soil, and after that, how much of there is a significant difference to the actual finished product? Now, there might be tiny, tiny nuances, but, you know, things like yeast, you know, malolactic fermentation, whether it's co-inoculation or sequential um you know how long it's spent in bottle how you know what type of corks you use there's what's in the dosage all of these things you know these equate to a lot more than are you on chalk or are you, are you on green sand yeah. now people oh, tell think me about green sand i don't know about well green i mean you've got green sand uh, across the uk as well you've got a lot of different um, sort of soil types that are free draining essentially and that's what that's what you want for your soil you know your, your vines i mean you can plant on, on london and clay like they do up in uh, sort of in Essex and in Kent as well but as long as you're you know working the land and making sure that your, your vines are able to grow down um, they will you know they'll survive and they'll produce good fruit the problem um, I sort of find with with, with chalk and, and people will say oh no this is on chalk it, it tastes you know it tastes leaner there's more finesse I, uh, I think a lot of the time that's because these are the sites that are more elevated these are the sites that, that, that tend to, you know, be slightly cooler and slightly colder, um, because you sort of think whether the, you know, how the chalk runs, it, it it goes upwards. So the second you're going above sea level, yeah, it starts to cool down. So you go up thirty meters above sea level, it's colder than it was, you know, sure. at, at sea level. You've also got to start getting that wind chill factor as well. So if you're on chalk and you're on the downs, then all of a sudden you don't have a huge amount of, of wind protection. So you've got the wind coming in that could be could be quite sort of cool and uh, you know acts as a uh, you know, basically as a, a, a as a fridge, so your grapes are going to start to to struggle to to ripen a little bit more. Now that doesn't mean that they're not going to produce fantastic wines. It's more, you know, are you going to get the yield? And in difficult years or in late years, are you actually going to get them ripe? Yeah. And that's the you know that's the that's the key thing for me. I think it's you know if you if you want to. If you want England to be a you know sustainable um, grape growing country, basically, you have to be planting in the best areas. And uh, th- there are some amazing places with chalk where Tattinger have bought. That's going to sure. be that's going to be stunning. They're going to be some some cracking wines there because there's this area in Kent that's warm and it's dry. Yeah, and it is on chalk as well, and they'll, they'll do great. Same with sort of where Ch- uh, sort of Chapel Down have bought. There's you know you're looking at some 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 really good areas around. But, Site selection is crucial. I mean, whether Absolutely. it's chalk or not chalk. Yes. I mean, I guess there must have been a point where a lot of vineyards were, were built and maybe planted in the sixties and seventies and eighties. Was it was sort of a spare field or a bit of spare money? That's right. But it wasn't really well thought out site selection. Mm. And now, if we're making wine or growing grapes in a really marginal climate like this, yes. then site selection is vital. And maybe that accounts for quite a lot of the rise in quality because we've grown grapes in the right place. Um, um, What are the price... I mean, I don't imagine um, English land comes cheap. Um, But what are the prices compared to... I mean, presumably it comes cheaper than champagne. Uh, A lot cheaper than champagne, yes. Any idea? Can you quantify that at all? Yes, I mean, in England you... you, uh, 
it's probably easier to convert it into to euros. So about sort of twenty seven and a half thousand euros for for a hectare in England. Um, you know, maybe up to sort of thirty five. Um, you got a champagne, and you're looking at a million euros to you know sort of two million euros a hectare. So oh. you know, well, there's wow. the, 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 there's a long way to you know catch up. Um, yeah, there's a lot of room um, in between English land and and and, and champagne for sure. You can um, see by the. Um, Champenois, like Tatanger, is really interested in coming over there. Well, but then people aren't buying vineyards in Champagne, are they? Really, it's still a collection of lots of growers. Yes. So it's not about planting. I mean, if you were a big producer, you can still access grape source. You want to plant more vineyards to do it because that's there. So yeah. It's a slightly. It's a bit like Burgundy. Just. Only the land might be difficult to do. Doesn't mean you can't access the grapes. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. You can still buy the grapes. Although, yeah, the, yeah, the, the cost of champagne grapes are extremely high yeah, as well. Sure. Um, and it's you know it's it's, it's one of those um, you know it's quite interesting looking at the, the the price of growing English grapes. To, to, to their market value, and then also in champagne, what the, the, the growers are able to, to earn and produce, and actually have a, a prop, proper livelihood as well. Um, you know, the, the yields they get in champagne are, are two, three times higher than what we get in the UK. Um, a lot of that's because. Uh, you know the price of the land uh, for example you're going to fit as many vines in as possible like they do in champagne so you go to champagne and you know the the vines are sort of knee height aren't they yeah you know you go into uh, the vineyard you were at the other day there's you would have had very large beers yeah. here with sort of big yeah. canopies because you don't have to to cram it in and you can take advantage for um you get more leaf area you, you're not close to the ground where you've got that disease pressure so you, you know the, the, we're looking at maybe you know 1500 vines per you yeah. know per, per, per acre and it's probably twice that in, in champagne so you know they do get a lot more yield you know the plant is a lot a lot more dense as well um so on when we're talking about champagne because i think this is a, a kind of crucial and we can go through it as we go through this range of ones we've got wines to taste mm-hmm. i am um, so i have a feeling that there's a a lot of people are very pleased to make a sparkling wine that tastes quite a lot like champagne almost like champagne is the benchmark and if we make sparkling wine that tastes like it then we've done a really good job and i completely get that yeah. um and last year and the year before i've been involved in the independent english wine awards and judged on that and um tasting through it i've often been shocked by how good some sparkling wines are that have no pretense of trying to be champagne, yeah. but really show off the brilliance of being English. I aren't ashamed of, you know, high acidity, leanness, yeah. clean, bright, well, clean, elegant fruit. So they're not trying to be champagne, they're trying to be very English. And the first one, for Fiona, you bought this wine, didn't you? Yes, so I did. Um, so this is a really, really new um, wine, um, sparkling wine from an... Uh, um, an existing uh, vineyard, but this is the first time they've branched out into making sparkling wine. Um, the vineyard's called Dunleavy, and they're just outside uh, Bristol. And they have made this from um, Savoir Blanc, um, which I think gives it, you know, a very different and actually, to me, very English character. Yeah. It's got that kind of um, fragrant, slightly elderflowery note to it. Green apples, I guess. Green apples, definitely. Um, and so I think there's a place for that myself. I do, I do too. Yeah, I mean, Save Al Blanc is, as far as a grape variety, you can grow this on more difficult sites and you will get yields. And in difficult years, you will still get grapes. And that's the beauty about Save Al Blanc. As far as something that is is viable as far as English wine's concerned, that's the, 
that's a grape variety that will continue to produce um, grapes year in, year out. Yeah. Um, it, there's probably only a certain level that it'll get to uh, as far as quality-wise is concerned. Um, but, it, yeah. It, oh, nope. <laughs> 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 it definitely has its, it definitely has its place. I was... Uh, that one's busy. I, yeah, oh. I was... Uh, yeah, I was... I, 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 I was running... Oh I was running late as a... Yeah, as a, as a, as a you, did yeah, you cut down the hill? Yeah. <laughs> New note, please. Uh, so, <laughs> the one I've now got half a bottle of. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. How do we pronounce it? So, Sorry. Uh, actually, Fiona, you, you, you had a lovely pronunciation of it earlier on. So, Sugru Pierre, um, which sounds really French, um, but actually is made by an Irish winemaker. Um, and uh, I think it's now called Sugru. Um, uh, I think it's rebranded it as Sugru. And can we, is this a continuation of that last bit of conversation that it's trying to be quite English? Not ashamed, yeah, yeah. Not ashamed of being ashamed. English. So, yeah, I don't know, uh, I think it's a bit different. No, it's not kind of, I mean, this to me, the Dunleavy, is like um, the perfect aperitif wine. It's, it's, really, it's really light, fragrant, actually very summery. Um, and and um, I think Dermot's wines sit between, between that and between. Champagne, they, they're, they're, they're quite different, I think. Yeah, definitely. And they take advantage, they make a virtue of um, the English style, which is kind of quite um, quite lean and tight. Um, I think they're wines that actually really benefit from being um, drunk with food. Uh, mind you, I think every wine benefits from being drunk with food, but that's, a, that's another thing. Um, but um, Much more skillful. So, yeah, so, so, yeah, so, so when you open a bottle, it should sound like an angel's fart. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, Dermot's fantastic winemaker. I mean, the the, the two bottles I brought was uh, was this and also the Night Ember 2010. So Dermot used to make the wines at Night Ember, and the styles of wines that uh, that uh, that he's always sort of made, they are there's, uh, you know, like you were sort of saying, that, that sort of Englishness to them where where quite often there was no malolactic fermentation yeah. and he's been braver and braver, lowering the dosage as well. He, he he likes to play about with sort of oak and, you know, there's not... All, all dokes, we're not looking at, you know, smelling an oak barrel here. It is the small fermentation vessels. It's, um, you know, sort of adding that little bit of oxidation into it as well. Um, and, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's really exciting winemaking. And um, and what I wanted to show was was this wine compared to the, the, the Night Ember 2010, um, what was taken over by... By, by Sherry and Brad, and they uh, sort of implemented changes that, uh, that that have turned Night Timber into a, a sort of a different kettle of fish to yeah. what they to what they used to be. Where you know there's sort of more malolactic fermentation, a little bit less kind of oxidative, um, you know, sort of wine making techniques as well. Um, and I, you know, sort of sitting side by side, you've got you know sort of um, you know the fantastic winemakers in, in Derma and, and and Sherry and Brad, and um, you know two fantastic wines, but two you know yeah. sort of different. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a world-class sparkling wine. I do too. I think that's for... absolutely dazzling. I really love it. But it does taste English. I mean, I don't think this tastes mm. really like champagne. I mean, it, I mean, maybe, but not quite. It's leaner. I get almost a red apple note on it, which I really like. Um, it's, 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 it's complex, but absolutely dry and loose. And actually, when we did that docile session with you a couple of mm. weeks ago, I mean, I remember before we did any additions, you know, yeah. when it was at its leanest, um, it was still complex. It, you know, I always imagine that almost complexity, you know, a bit like adding sugar to a banana or a strawberry, kind of, that would bring out the flavour. But actually, 
here you're not short of complexity at all are you? no you're not you're not and and it's a you know you've got that lovely uh, you know you have got that malic acid in there as well i think this has been uh some of it, so half of it was fermented in, in all those barrels half in stainless steel that went in stainless steel went through malolactic fermentation and and, and what didn't has, has has been inhibited so you've got that malic acid and that is that that you know that real mm. green granny smith kind of um yeah. sort of uh, on on the palate and it's a and it does it makes it a very distinguishedly be you know english english sparkling wine i think um, it's outstandingly packaged uh, it sounds like a champagne doesn't yeah. it doesn't mm-hmm. sound like an english name well, especially when it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i <laughs> have to say um, uh, while, while we've been chatting david has with great uh, nobility david being our um incredibly knowledgeable <laughs> sound guy has um actually took off his shirt and actually mopped up. <laughs> you did. I, I like, that. It's just amazing. I thought I lost I your attention what? for a moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a gent. Anyway, explain a little bit about, because um, I think people don't necessarily understand um, uh, the terms about malic acid and um, malolactic okay. fermentation, just in, you know, in a very brief description, um, just for people who are not familiar with it. So, say, say what happens. Okay, so well, in, in, in a grape, you've got two types of acid. You've got tartaric acid and malic. You, you've got several other ones, but in, in tiny quantities. Now, in somewhere like England, cool, cold climate, you've got very high levels of malic acid. Now, this malic acid, that will degrade as uh, you know the the warmer the season becomes um so if you've got a, a cool cold climate you're going to end up with high malic acid levels now if you go to west country compared to sort of the the east of england you you notice a huge difference in the malic acid levels there but what happens then whenever you start making your wine is is, is it retains the malic acid to a certain degree the tartaric drops slightly but you can turn the malic acid into lactic acid so you can imagine like a sort of say green you know uh, sort of um, granny smith apple compared to lactic acid you sort of think of milk you know, mm-hmm. a, bit, uh, a bit more sort of um, you know sort of uh, creamy a lot more delicate acid essentially um, and with bacteria it happens naturally or you can inoculate for it it will uh, the bacteria the lactic acid bacteria it will turn or convert the malic acid into lactic so you end up with a a rounder smoother wine if you go through malolactic fermentation so you won't find a red wine that has been inhibited for malolactic all of them will go through uh, sort of mlf um for your still wines sort of think of new zealand sauvignon blanc where it'll be inhibited nice fresh crisp you know sort of zesty uh, compared to a you know a burgundy white what will you know most of the time have gone through uh, sort of malolactic fermentation mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and it, it gets more interesting than that as well because if you are going to go through malolactic fermentation you've got the ability to to co-inoculate so you, you add the bacteria during fermentation stages whilst the yeast is still active or you can add it post-fermentation and what happens if you're adding it during fermentation is the diacetyl it produces malolactic fermentation diacetyl is that real buttery kind of you know sort of flavor that some people like some people don't but the the yeast are able to uh, you know sort of cut down these the sort of you know the, the buttery flavors so if you want something a bit more kind of fruit driven 
then you do a cool inoculation. If you want something buttery, then you do a sequential one, or, or you allow for a sequential malolactic fermentation. So I'm not sure what Dermot has done with his half that did go through malolactic fermentation, um, but I'm pretty sure Night Timber do co-inoculation. They, I don't know if they were doing it in 2010. They certainly are now because they they want a purity to, to you know to their base wines rather than having that diacetyl that buttery sort of flavor so put it crudely um, in in kind of lay terms so um dermot makes his more in a kind of you know sort of crisp sharp you know bright intense style and well, we'll take we'll taste the night timber but mm. what i remember from tasting night timber before is that actually that is in the more kind of classic rich toasty style yeah. that, um, can i ask you a question which is a bit political yes without getting political if we go through brexit mm. right and we're out of europe can we call our sparkling wine champagne i, I hope, I hope and, not and will anyone <laughs> I, I i i hope not there's um yeah i mean as an english winemaker you want to make english wine you don't want to make champagne to, to you know to start off with if you want to make champagne it'd be a negative movement to it would be english champagne hugely there's a i think you know um you have to have the most uh, respect for champagne and what it is and what it stands for yeah. and if you want to to say oh i make you know i make an english champagne it, it, it takes a mockery out of them it makes and us yeah and uh, and of us there's um yeah, you, you know, we have to stand on our own two feet. And I think, you know, uh, uh, even comparing us to, to Champagne, I, I, think it's, I, think it's a bit un, I think it's a bit unfair for, for both parties. It's like... Um, but there, there are know. people out there, there are customers out there. Mm. Champagne doesn't mean a region. Champagne means quality, Just, uh, quality bubbles. Yes. And sparkling wine means less quality bubbles. So if you make English champagne, it's high quality. If you make English sparkling wine, it's sparkling wine. Mm. I'm just... I'm, it, the assumption that everyone knows that champagne is a place is... I think an assumption actually lots of people don't. Champagne's just better quality fizz to lots of people. Mm. Yeah. Or the best fizz yeah, yeah, is yeah. called champagne. Wasn't there this, this move to um, coin the name Britannia? Or like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that died the death, thank goodness, because that, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that was a really clunky word. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there's, there's merits was knocked about quite a bit as well. Um, should we do the. We'll do, we'll do the, we'll do the lands yeah. next. There's. Yeah. Um, there's yeah, yeah. I don't, there's in, in, English bathing wine. It might be a bit of a mouthful, but you know, it says what it. You know. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. <laughs> and it upsets Welsh, who also makes bathing wine. They do. Yeah, I think there's. Yeah. You know, there is a. Um, yeah, I mean the Welsh make some some, some fantastic wines, and um, I guess there's I can I can see why they'd be a bit upset if um, if, if they're not included under that. Um, and yeah, in, in that's why the um, um, English was like English Vineyards um, Association was rebranded. Great British Wine yeah. GB. Wine, wine GB. That's mm. right. Mm. I'm not sure I'm keen on. Sounds a bit like a sports team. Okay, so we're doing a lang on that. Yeah. You used to be the winemaker here, didn't you? So, yeah, I was. There was um, up until... Uh, so I left Lames for the 2015 harvest. Um, uh, yeah, obviously left in, on, on very good terms. There's um, One of the things I really wanted to do was make still wine. And at Langham's they want to concentrate just on sparkling you know it's a it's, a, it's an amazing vineyard that's um, located just outside of Dorchester and um, you know and we sort of I was talking about chalk this is this is mostly on chalk as well but it is quite elevated um, uh, sort of because of that so you've got vineyards up to kind of 100 100 meters but uh, you know the wines have turned out really well 
I've got a great liking for uh, Langham Wines and Furley Estate, for example, and you know they're endorsing. You know, there's um, you know there's a distinct kind of um, sort of profile to these wines, and and I think a lot of that reason is because it's in the West Country. The acid levels, whenever you you get to harvest, they are. You know, the, the, the sky high. The first harvest I was there, I couldn't believe. I, you know, I'd, I'd worked at, at Hush Heath with Owen Elias and, and sort of King's Code. And, um, you know, I was used to, to fruit coming in from Kent. I was, you know, this came in from from Dorset. And I was sort of scratching my head, how, you know, how are we going to make this so it's not, you know, just a, a complete, you know, sort of zing fest. And, you know, by the time it's gone through malolactic fermentation and, and you've cold stabilised it, actually, you know, yes, the acid levels are high, but... They're, they're manageable, um, and it, it, it does give the it does give the wines a you know a certain uh, a certain style. Um, you know, turning all that malic acid into into lactic acid is you know it's definitely it's definitely different. Um, I, I'm a big fan of this one. I think this is lovely. I this think. is this is in. I think you hand most people a glass of that, they would definitely think it was champagne, and it, yeah. this is more in the. I think, you know, um, the first two wines, the Dunleavy and the Sucre-Pierre, are kind of like, you know, well, this is not champagne. This, this, I think, you could mistake for champagne quite Definitely. easily. It's, I mean, there's a green sappiness of... that I get, which probably mm, yeah. you don't quite get for mm. champagne, but yeah. I do know. Do you know what? I remember taking this wine to... I, did it, I, I work a bit in Czech Republic, and I did a wine talk to a group of sommeliers five years ago, and they were all from Germany and from the Czech Republic. Five years ago, I did a talk on English sparkling wine, and they all looked at me like I was a madman. Mm. You know, I was coming to Europe and showing them wine from England, a place where we didn't make wine, apparently. Yeah. And last year, I did the same talk, and everyone was like, oh, have you had Hattingley? Have you had Cottonworth? Have you had Nightingale? Yeah. You know, incredible. Mm. And, and this wine was actually the wine that everyone liked the best that day, funnily enough. But I think um, it also illustrated how... Even in the ex, it's well, maybe even more in the export market, we yeah. are suddenly seen as a serious player, which we were. It's quite quick. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, there's there's no doubt people are yeah they're they're, they're picking onto it very you know uh, just the the quality and and how it, it can be transported abroad now. Yeah. Um, I think we've got um, yeah re- real potential. What we don't have is that many wineries producing the volumes. Yeah. Warrant exporting, um, you know. Uh, so, so Langham's, for example, I think you know, 2014, we made about thirty thousand bottles. So not not a huge quantity, you know. Would easily sell ten to fifteen thousand just inside Dorset alone. So you know, there's the the, the remainder doesn't have to go too far afield to uh, yeah. to be sold. It's not really, you know, it, the, the the larger players who are starting to sort of ramp up. Those are the guys that are going to concentrate on exporting, and they'll pave the way for other people to to, yeah. to, to join later on. Uh, there's a lot of work to set up, you know. That, that concept about everything being sold, a lot of proportion, say 40% being sold within Dorset. Mm. Um, is that some an obstacle for English wine that, I mean, certainly I grew up in Devon, and David, you come from down there too, you know, and we drank, if you went to a restaurant, you'd drink Sharpham, and when we were in Cornwall, we would drink Camel Valley. Um, and it was almost like you bought the local. It was it, actually rather than being English wine, it was local wine. Yes, you know. Yeah, and I've, maybe that's something we need to get over a little bit as well. I think. I think so. I think there's. Um, I think there's. Uh, if you if, if if you just have that one vineyard, then you've got the ability to have a terrible year. If if you spread the vineyards across 
further parts of England, then you're able to um, to combat that. But uh, you know, and like I was sort of saying, that, you know, I mean, at Lion Bay Winery, there's two thirds of my grapes come from from Essex. There's we've got no problem uh, telling people about that. There's we write on the back of the labels where the where the, where the grapes come from. Um, you know, we've got some fantastic vineyards in Devon and Dorset. Um, but uh, what we want to make is a really good English still wine year in year out, um, and also a very good English you know English sparkling wines year in year out. And for this, I want to make sure I get the ripest fruit. Um, so I've gone to the driest, warmest area of England and yeah. sort of set up shop there as far as vineyard supplies, um, mostly with Duncan McNeil, who's a viticulturist over there. He manages the vineyards and, and we work well as a, as, as a team. Um, and, you know, you do get some sort of snide remarks sort of going, oh, it's not a Devon wine. Then it's like, no, it's, a, it's an English wine. There's, you know, I don't, yeah. want, I don't want to make a great Devon wine. I want to make a great English wine. So going back so, to what I said earlier about um, this concept that I had a, a while ago, which was that Sussex Kent had the chalk and was close to, um, was to- close to Champagne in yeah. the region, which I feel like is a isn't something that I've just taken on. It's a lot of people have that Definitely. kind of idea. Yeah. Is Essex a bit of a dirty word that no one wants to talk about? Because it feels yeah. to me that the more I taste, the more I realise that a lot of good grapes come out of Essex. In fact, potentially, and there was a couple of reports recently, yeah. it might be our greatest terroir. Yeah, uh, there was. Um, yeah, there's just been a paper released that uh, that's basically looking at all the different regions in England and the, the weather over the last thirty years and what regions are most suitable for for viticulture viably and sustainably because you can grow and you can make fantastic wines at difficult locations, but can you do it year in year out and is it a proper business because you know. That's what you, it costs a lot of money to grow grapes, and yeah. if you're spending twice the amount of money growing the grapes as you are in other regions, then y- your wines have to be a lot more expensive. Um, and and it, you know, does it equate to better quality because they're being grown in more difficult places? I, I don't think so in England. I think you know, there's you go to California, and yes, you want to go into the, the coldest areas of California, but if you're in England, you want to go to the you know, you want to go to the driest, warmest areas of England, you don't want to go to the wettest, uh, you know, or, or, or the coolest parts of England. So, um, I think it's, I, I think it's, you know, I think it's incredibly exciting what's going on over, um, in Essex and and, and Kent as well. I think you've got, you know, some fantastic, I mean. And Sussex, so I'm not, I'm not sort of saying Sussex, Hampshire, no, sure, sure. Devon, Dorset. You know, the, you, you're going to struggle. Yeah, far from it. Um, I, I do just feel like, like you sort of say, Essex has nearly uh, not a dirty word, but you, you've only got one winery there at the moment. What's Newhall? You've got a lot of vineyards that are selling to the the, the top wineries in the UK, but they, they won't tell you that because they they want to, to give the impression that. Their wine's still local, um, yeah. and and it will catch on eventually. You know, people in Champagne buy grapes. There's left, right, yeah. and centre. It's very normal in California. Very normal in and in, um, in, in Australia. Australia. Yeah, yeah definitely. Sure. Yeah. I was thinking that how often do the great Champagne, or not the great Champagne, the Champagnes we often win the prizes. Big chunk of Pinot Meunier down from the Côte de Bar. Yeah. People don't really talk about the Côte de Bar because it's a bit further south. It's yeah. not one of the cool yeah. regions, but a lot mm-hmm. of the great Champagnes have their base there. They do, or mm-hmm. take a lot from it. So, yeah. what's wrong with the same concept in England? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's still. I mean, it's 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 not as well known. It's still uh, it's still champagne. Yeah. Uh, whereas Essex has a kind of resonance, carries baggage, doesn't it? Essex 
compared yeah. to you know Sussex uh, and uh, Devon and you know yes. and they all kind of sound like romantic and rural Essex sounds urban it does I agree it does. but also I worry sometimes that sparkling wine in England without being can be a little bit of a rich man's toy there are lots of examples of that right um, and maybe some of those people like to talk about the sort of wonderful homes in Sussex and Kent and they don't want to talk about the source material in Essex. I don't know if that's a little bit wrong or right. Yeah. But I just feel like it's not discussed. I can't see any reason why we're not incredibly proud of that source material because it seems to be exceptionally yeah, good. Yeah. I mean, you know, you go to Bordeaux and, and uh, Hope Brayon, I mean, it's not, it's not in the most picturesque part of Bordeaux. And, and I think, you know, there's parts of Essex that are absolutely stunning. And, and the Crouch uh, Valley sort of region, that Denji Peninsula, is actually it's one of the most sparsely populated places in the UK um, you know and it is it's, 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 it's stunning there's a, 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 a you know this little uh, and it's not even a little part of, of, of Essex the, the, the study that's just been released was saying this is where there is the most viable vineyard land available in the UK so uh, I mean I was talking about uh, you know we're talking about the downs in say Kent and, 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 and there are great places but you've got a lot of hills in Kent and you've got a lot of north facing aspects you've got elevation so there's the, there's only pockets there whereas this kind of Crouch Valley region you've got a you know you've got this vast you know kind of um, expanse that, workable that could land. be of, of, of workable land yeah and there's also these incredible pockets of, of gravel, these you know this, this sort of free you know sort of draining soil there as well, and um, yeah no there's a, I mean there's a lot going on there, and it's only just started. That's the I think that's the exciting thing about it. There was um, you know after I sort of saw the grapes in 2012 from from Newhall, I was like, oh hold on, how come how come they were able to do this when no one else in the UK was able to? Um, and then the more I looked into sort of the the climate there, you sort of realise well hold on, it's because you know, they're, they're nearly semi-arid at that, you know, yeah. um, in, in that region. And um, and now Duncan set up his his viticultural consultancy and, and, and management, so he will be managing these different vineyards to an extremely high standard. You just, you know, it, it's the start of a ball rolling, I think. And, you know, in 10, 20 years' time, it'd be, you know, it'd be obvious. It's like, oh, that's, you know, of course that's a good region to be to be yeah. growing grapes and making wine but it's just yeah it's just gonna it's just gonna take a a, a while before i think we yeah before we get there Fiona, yeah, no, we're going to pour night for now right which is sort of instrumental this wine isn't it isn't this brand a, a sort of the flag bearer i think it is i think it's you know it's a brand that people really recognize now you know they they know that, that is an english sparkling wine and they look out for it and it's actually been you know it's on it's in supermarkets, so it's in Waitrose, isn't it? You can you can buy it there. Yeah, it's quite often on special offer, which reminds me, Thank I you. want to talk about price. Oh. Because um, a lot of sparkling wines are, uh, English sparkling wines, are relatively expensive. They are, they are kind of champagne prices. And, um, you know, I can see both sides of the argument. I mean, it costs to mm. a, a significant amount to to buy vineyard land to or to, you know, to take to plant vines and um you know to set up a winery a sparkling wine winery but you know they haven't they've got younger vines there are younger vines on the whole to play with and um probably less reserve in the way of reserves than in champagne so is it reasonable to charge champagne prices for a younger less complex product was that irrelevant i think it's a yeah you know, it's, it's a very good question i think you know the first thing we have to broach is 
actually, this, if we start at the beginning, was duty VAT. So you get buy a bottle of champagne and uh, or English sparkling wine, you've got your VAT twenty percent, and then your duty what um, was two pounds sixty seven. Although I think it's going up again. Uh, I'm not too sure what to. So you've got your tax to take off. Then the next thing to look at is the actual wine itself. How much did that cost? To, you know the actual liquid itself you know how much did the grapes cost to grow uh, for champagne you can't buy grapes in champagne uh, for I think it's about so six thousand euros to eight thousand euros um, a, a ton um, so six to, 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 to eight euros a kg um, so you know very very punchy prices so in theory you know if you're only getting um, I can't remember what the, the, the regulations are if it's 62 63 percent extraction rate you've got a lot of money in that liquid in England, the grape prices are much, much lower than that. I don't know if they should be. Um, you know, most places in the UK will struggle to grow grapes and then make a profit on it uh, for less than so three and a half thousand pounds a ton. But they, they're not getting paid that. They're, they're getting paid a, a, sort of quite a bit less. So uh, it's it, it's a little bit of a, a difficulty on 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 you know. Okay, the liquid in champagne's worth more than the English sparkling wine. I think um, there's a contention. Maybe should be equal um, because of the lower yields in England. So there's that aspect to it. Then there's the. I mean, if you're a grower in Champagne, then you're laughing because you're you you yeah. you, you, you you're growing very cheap grapes essentially to, mm. to to put into your wine. But if you're a Champagne house buying in large quantities, your actual wine will be more expensive than the, the than the English base wine. But then you've got the scale of things. So if you're buying, you know, 24,000 bottles, one lorry load of bottles, there's the the costs are huge, there's the disgorging equipment. A lot of people don't have their own disgorging equipment, so they're sending wines to the likes of me at Lime Bay where I'll contract disgorging for them um, or they'll, they'll send it to Dermot or to, to Emma at Hattingley. Um, so there's the, they're incurring contract winemaking costs kind of throughout the, the process as well. Labels, you know, if you were reeling off 100,000 labels compared to 10,000 labels, there's, it cuts the unit, unit price down, down hugely. Um, and then there is, a, yeah, I think it's, it's more a matter of scale quite a lot yeah, of the Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds um, like it, it's, it's a question of scale. Small, lots of small people, I mean, like Dunleavy starting up, you know, really small. This really is about, they want to make a sparkling wine and, you know, I mean, they, they have to invest to do that. And they're small, they're tiny. Yeah. Yeah, I think often with wine, things end up priced with their competitive set as well, somewhere around that. And I feel like with sparkling wine from England particularly, that settles somewhere around 25 to £30. Pounds. Um, and that has its issues as well, I think. I think a lot of, of the less good ones get up to £25 pounds quite readily, mm. um, arguably without quality meaning that they should be there, potentially. And then at the same time, it seems to be quite hard for the good people to get past that £30 bar- barrier. So yeah. it seems... I don't, might be wrong on that, but it feels think, like quite a narrow yeah, yeah, yeah. tool. I, 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 it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, in England you have got this boom at the moment. I think there will eventually be that, that, that consolidation where the wines that are that you know, 25 to £30 pounds that shouldn't be there, they'll fall off the market. Um, yeah. I'd be, I'll be surprised if in 10, 15 years' time they'll, they'll still be in business. Um, or, or if they are, it'll yeah. just be to a small kind of um, uh, local scale it's what we saw in New Zealand as you know there was big boom and then you know a consolidation and wine reason um, you know the, although the, the volumes have been uh, you know continue yeah. to increase the, the amount of wineries uh, but I can know. think of a few and I'm not going to name them but a few 
well-known English sparkling wines where they have come from, they've sort of almost bought a finished product and they've labelled it and it sits quite high at the thing. Yeah. And then you can see other people who've got single estate, it's homegrown, yeah. own vineyards, and they aren't really achieving any more. Now, of course, I mean, you, 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 could, yeah. you could square that with anywhere in the world, but yes. there, there does seem to be, at the moment, some of those brilliant sites, wonderful, mm. um, you know, everything's done extremely well on a very small scale, hasn't yet ended up in that site or that wine becoming a more expensive product, yeah. And mm. I feel like there's some yeah. somewhere to go on that. Yeah. And for, for, for which, you know, I suppose we should thank the, you know, the pioneers who actually did charge champagne prices because they were saying, yeah. this is serious, this is worth doing, we can do this, yeah. and we can do it to the level of champagne, you yeah. could argue, and I'm sure... And Night Ember would definitely be yeah. that, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah. you know, this was the one where you remember the, the, the royal family pouring it for the, you know, the... Mm. Or the French president being served it when the mm. prime minister. You remember all those conversations. It is the one that was sort of yeah, the flag bearer of English wine. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. No shortcuts taken from start to finish. Yeah, high timber at all. And 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 it has got yeah. that consistency, hasn't it? Uh, Higher dosage, yeah. So this will be at ten grams per yeah. litre. Um, but so dosage. Um, one of you winemakers explain to people who are not familiar with the term what dosage is. So after you finish your secondary fermentation, you have to get rid of the yeast. So you riddle the yeast and get rid of that through, through through disgorging but then once you've got rid of the yeast you can add some more more sugar at this stage and um, this is where you're deciding whether it's you know uh, sort of a brute or a demi-sec or a sec uh, you know and, and where in between um, because you've got such high levels of co2 you're not going to get a, a tertiary fermentation you've you've had your secondary fermentation where you've added sugar and yeast and you've got your six bar of pressure and you're actually 1.5 percent alcohol um, but you add more sugar at this stage and it's it's, it's totally stable um but this dosage you can you've got a couple of options with this you can either play about with base wine and sugar or you can use uh, rectified grape concentrate what's basically sugar from the the grape uh, with everything removed by the by the sugars i tend to play about with both i'll, I'll play about with base wine and sugar and rcgm but like we you know whenever we 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 looked at the classic cuvee 2015 it was a wine that was complex enough it didn't need any lifting no. it didn't need any more any l- sort of layers sure. um, kind of added to it um but you, you know with the with the base wines you can you can play it around a lot with the the base wines because that can change the character as well yeah. um what night timber will do is um they use a, a base wine so the blanc de blanc 2010 that that's what they'll use as their base wine mixed with the sugar to add as dosage. Other people will use wines, so like I, uh, I've played about with some barrel-aged wines as my base wine, mix yeah. that with, with, with sugar and use that as dosage. Um, or you can use a, you know, a wine that's been kept as reserve, for example, and you can, can use that. You've got, uh, the lovely thing about sparkling wine, You've got all these stages, and you can, um, you know, you can just add little touches here and there. If you if you do anything in any great, you know, if you're looking for impact, you're just going to you know, absolutely murder it. But you can just add these little sort of hints every, you know, at, at the different sort of stages from you know your pressing to your primary fermentation to the elevage to you know um, fermentation vessels to to how you do the the secondary fermentation, how long you leave it on the lees. There's you know the dosage, then how long you leave under cork before before releasing and i know we're running out of time but i think that's you know i i, I feel sorry not talking about um 
uh, sparkling wine. I'm not talking about cork age, especially with okay, English wine. Quick, quick word about cork age. Tell us. So, whenever you are doing secondary fermentation and you're aging on lees, it is. It's, it's very inert. It's a reductive environment where you've got the lees um, and, and the wine. Now, once you remove the lees and you put a cork in, you start getting more of an ingress of oxygen. And this will develop different flavours and, you know, it's very, very slow sort of oxidation. You'll, you see O2 escaping as well. So, you know, you leave it too long and, you know, you, you'll end up with a, a bottle of sparkling wine that, that isn't very sparkling um, and maybe even slightly over the top with oxidation. But, I mean, I definitely think in England one of the, the most important things is, is cork age because it really does end up, you know, turning these acids into sort of more brioche kind of flavours and, and, and it rounds them out as well sometimes into to something that can be, you know, a real lovely range of, um, you know, your, your grapes, your your autolysis and then the cork age. You've got, you know, quite, quite a bit going on there, but... Um, it's one of those things where, as we're releasing more and more wine, it's harder and harder to give your wines cork age because you've got the demands of people sort of saying, no, no, I want the wine now, and you sell it to them, and then it goes in and it's, re- it's released very quickly. Um, so it's one of those ones where it's, uh, you know, ideally if you're um, if you're buying sparkling wine, you'll see when it was disgorged. I don't know, does Dermot, Dermot normally puts his... Um, uh, I, I think Night Timber do a QR code now. There's probably not a 2010, but Dermot might have the the disgorging date written on here somewhere um do, do, do. yeah i can yeah i can see it. i mean i'm pretty sure weston's do he's got a qr code there so it might be that you 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 have a look at the qr code and it tells you when the wine was uh, disgorged and that's yeah, you know, it's hugely important because you can say, um, you know, wine's had this long on lease, but you know, unless you know how long it's had on cork, you, you're not really going to know what the, the character of the wine's going to yeah. going to be like, or, or at what stage just pick that pick that character. So, when you're buying English sparkling wine, worth looking out for um, slightly older vintages, and or if you yeah. don't, if you're just kind of buying one locally, maybe maybe taste one if you think it's kind of. Could do with you know settling a bit. Yeah. Just leave it, leave it yeah, tucked away for yeah. six months or so. If you've got six bottles of wine and you open one and you think, oh, this is tasting a bit lean or um, you know slightly too acidic or uh, one-dimensional, just yeah, give, give 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 it time under cork. Um, you've also got a couple of different types of yeah, cork there as well. So you've got your Diam cork there mm. and the, the, the traditional yeah sort of twin desk, um, and um, you know the, the I sort of say the Diam doesn't doesn't breathe as well as the the, the tradition I'm, I'm not sure i i agree with that at all i think there is maybe that initial stage um where, where oxygen gets in quicker with the 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 twin uh, desk one compared to the dm but um yeah it's amazing how whenever you start opening sparkling wine if you if you start looking at what um, what type of cork uh, is used it's, it's amazing just how many people are turning to the the, the dm mitic corks um, you know, there's a there's a lot to be said for for the traditional demand well. from retailers now for DM. They're, they're, I they see it all the time. Mm. More and more retailers saying unless it's DM, they don't want. Well, cork is a, a whole other subject, which yes, I'm yes. sure we'll um, return to uh, in due course. But yes. Um, yes. thanks, Liam. That's been absolutely fascinating. I've learned an yeah. enormous yeah, amount. Brilliant. I, I, I mean, I'm just excited by the country we live in for now. I mean, I, I think the idea that you go into a restaurant, and you now get a choice of English wines or yeah. sparkling wine, particularly. And the appetite, I mean, it, beca- it, it feels like a big conversation in the world of wine, yeah. English sparkling wine. That's a pretty 
pretty nice place it's to be. It's a good place so. to be, isn't it? It is. It's a nice place to be. Yeah. Yeah. Northern Irish winemaker. Northern Irish winemaker in England, yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, the, yeah, the reason I left Northern Ireland was to get the sun. I was like, right, now I've got to go to California, I've got to sunbathe, and I end up in England. But it is definitely, yeah, it's, 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 it's frontier winemaking. It's a, um, you know, it's, yeah, extremely exciting. And, it's, yeah, it's great to get the, you know, sort of press and, 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 and consumers behind it i think that's the you know that, that, that's a major thing is is, is is it's all all in good creating something but if you don't have people that are willing to 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 be open to it then it, you know it, it's a lot more difficult thank you very much thanks so much you've been listening to with liam stevenson and fiona beckett in conversation with winemaker liam idzikowski you can join fiona and liam next time when they will be discussing wine lists with sommelier and wine consultant Ruth Spivey.